The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Up Close with Chris Tinney. Don't forget to visit ChrisTinney.com for more information about today's topics and download the new Spread Peace app that makes it easy to take action and advocate for the causes you care about. And now, here's your host, Chris Tinney. Well, welcome back for another episode of Up Close with Chris Tinney. We have a great show planned for you tonight. You're going to meet one of my mentors uh, and also my older brother, who I started out with as a stockbroker uh, more than a couple of decades ago. I feel old. Uh, he's gone on to be an investment banker. I've been on, gone on to become your favorite vegan Harley-riding hippie, right? Uh, but bringing you shows like this of the thought leaders and and uh, and business leaders that are making a real difference in the communities and, and having an impact on the world that we live in. And so I'm really uh, just, first of all, I want to thank you. I so love all my listeners. Um, I, I love all of you that have left comments at, on the Chris Tenney fan page on Facebook, because that helps get this information out to other people that can use it to help, to help, you know, walk a little more softly on this small planet. Uh, our last shows have been getting shared all over the, uh, hemp airplane aircraft being made out of hemp, the bicycle ride across America for the homeless, the keepers of the wild animal rescue and Valentine that's saving tigers and lions. And of course the CEO of surf riders and circle. USA that are lifting people out of poverty. So I hope you go to ChrisTinney.com and check out the show because it's not just about this one hour, right? We we get together on the Facebook fan page. We get together in our, our Goodreads group that we have where you can help me select the authors that we're going to talk about. So just a big shout out to all of you. And don't forget on Twitter, it's Hotai Guy, H-O-T-E-I. Hotai, if you know who the Hotai Buddha was, uh, you, they call him the Laughing Buddha in America. But you know the one that has the bag over his back? It said that hundreds of or thousands of years ago when the, that particular monk in the 1800s used to go around with a bag and it had in it supposedly anything you wanted. In reality, he was a monk that had food and he started collecting toys and things like that for children. But over the years, it became that he was the Hotai Buddha of happiness that could bring you everything you want. So that's uh, why I try to be the Hotai guy. I bring you at least some information. I'm not going to try to live up to that standard, but I hope I bring you something that helps make your life a little bit better on one of these shows, whether it's the essential oils. Joe Wallach, what a show that was. Knock that out of the park uh, on uh, on nutritional products. He's, he's the tape that was banned <laughs> that they didn't want you to hear and, and solar power. So today... We have a real big, uh, great guest for you, a great topic of conversation. I always tell you this is like coming into my home and sitting down with me and having a chat with my friends. And I guess today's show matches up with that description more than any I've ever done before because my brother is on the phone with us and uh, he's an investment banker from the Bay Area. He goes back with more than uh, two decades experience. You know, I should have brought this up on our on our page here before I brought it up, but I'm going to let him share with you a little bit about his background. I know he has a couple of disclaimers that he needs to give out before we get started here. But you're in for a real treat because he, he not only runs his own business, but he also teaches other brokers 
other people that own brokerage firms, those licenses, the people that run brokerage firms. He understands how capital moves and he understands how to make a difference with it. And he also knows how to help people reach their investment goals. So with that, let me introduce you to Dean Tenney. Dean, thank you so much for being on the call. Oh, always my uh, my pleasure. So uh, I think it'll be a good hour of entertainment and education. So our listeners need to know it's uh, neither a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell any securities. I'm not accepting any new accounts. I'm not working on any particular deal. So just going to be talking about uh, investment banking. Uh, we can talk about uh, training, writing, whatever it is that uh, speaks to the listeners. But uh, I'd like to give them a real uh, brief, what I call my elevator speech when people ask, what do investment bankers do? Uh, I consider myself to be a traditional investment banker, meaning I'm not uh, trading pieces of paper uh, amongst each other, but rather originating, allocating, and managing capital. So on the origination side, what that means is if an entrepreneur comes with me and they want to fund a winery or a restaurant or something like that in the Bay Area, I'll, I'll undertake that and uh, raise that money for them, and we can go uh, get that done and uh, provide some employment opportunities and investment opportunities. We allocate capital, so that's somebody who already has a deal. That's not an origination. That would be like a venture capital, a hedge fund, private equity fund. Somebody already has a winery, already has the restaurant, and would like me to uh, find some capital, allocate them to, uh, to them from my clients. I kind of call that the search function, searching for new opportunities. And then the last thing we do, is more on the investment advisory side, and that's manage and act as a steward uh, for people's uh, monies. All the monies are custody. It's a very important question that you'd want to ask any investment pro- uh, professional about custody. I always tell clients I can't steal what I don't touch, and so all the clients' money is custody at Schwab. So uh, Schwab is the one that holds their monies and securities, so they don't really have to worry about any of that. So that's kind of the uh, elevator speech and the disclaimer. I'm not sure, Chris, what we want to talk about past that, but we can go ahead and get started. Well, I thought this would be a great show because a lot of people kind of wonder what I do uh, as well. And, and, you know, with Hotai Media, the ad agency, you know, I've obviously gravitated towards public companies and social, you know, awareness campaigns, social media, uh, because they are so highly regulated. But there's been a big shift with the way people invest and and how they're regulated, especially in terms of, of, you know, what they can go do. It doesn't necessarily have to be for just a profit. So maybe, Dean, for those people that aren't familiar with social socially responsible responsible investments or what that term means or ESG, you could just give a, an example real quick or a, a definition of that before we get started. Sure. sure. Chris, when he came to uh, work with me many, many years ago, uh, was way ahead of what's now a little over $3 trillion that's allocated on a socially responsible uh, basis. What Chris and what I have always called socially responsible investing now is more popularly known as ESG investing. The E stands for environmentally friendly, the S is for sustainability, and the G is for corporate governance, Uh, making sure that if it's a public company, it's being uh, governed according to the wish of the shareholders, which would include an ethical component. So that's a relatively recent change because uh, for many, many uh, years and decades, it's been about the profit motive that our fiduciary standard was exclusively as the officers and directors of the company to our shareholders to deliver to them. Uh, earnings. And uh, there's been a change in that thought saying that there's also, under this idea of stewardship, an ethical responsibility we have to other constituents, whether it be the community that we operate in, whether it be uh, employees besides the shareholders. So uh, that's, uh, like I say, Chris, when you got started, I think there was one mutual fund in that space with about maybe a billion or two, and now it's up to like $4 trillion that's being allocated that way. 
Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, that was the Calvert Fund. I remember that. It was the only one I had. And I thought, wow, I hope it works out because <laughs> it ended up being the number one producing fund for three years. My clients thought I was brilliant, not that I had no other choices. <laughs> so uh, I was really excited about it. Hey, well, Dean, I want to kind of build on this real quick. I, I, before, so I want to start with how we can, you know, how having an impact with our consumer dollars, you know, makes a difference with the companies and then kind of lead up to, you know, a B Corp company and what people might look like. So, you know, I, I remember, you know, you sharing with me years ago, just walking through the mall, you can find a good investment. And, and you know, that's not that far off uh, from me telling people, hey, you know, you're making a difference with every dollar you spend. They should really be paying attention to, the, to, the, to where you're spending your dollars for a variety of reasons. And some of them are for profit motives, correct? Well, I, I would think, yes, Chris, I would say Peter Lynch is a legendary investor in our uh, industry. And he had a, a saying I loved. He said, you ought to own what you know. Uh, I would amend that. It's also, it can have stuff you don't want as a consumer support. So, you know, you can vote with your dollars, and that has a direct impact on the top line, their revenue, and, and their bottom line. So Peter Lynch said, you know, you ought to own some company that some idiot will run, uh, any idiot could run, because someday that idiot will be running that company. So <laughs> he would say, let's buy simple things. But I would amend that to say you can also – in our business, kind of unique, uh, take the other side of that. If they're doing something you don't like, uh, you can make money on what's called going short. So, for example, you never know when you're going to find an idea. Yours was the mall, my latest idea that I was thinking about. It didn't start out as an investment idea. It started out with a guy who got into it with social media about SeaWorld and how uh, this is not uh, ethically okay to you know pin these whales into SeaWorld. And then he came back with me and said, well, the earnings of the stock was up. I go, Really? So I started researching that stock and said, you know, that's an $18 stock. You know, I think that business model is uh, not so good. I looked at it. He said, well, they're doubling the size of their pins. I said, well, that means they're going to spend even more money on a dying business. So somebody who's making a bearish bet, I won't go into the technicalities of how to make a bearish bet, but basically somebody who's wishing the stock goes down, even better. Then I saw their dividends, not even supported by their earnings. So you never know when you're going to get a good idea. I haven't, haven't done that short yet. But it's one I'm strongly contemplating, and I kind of feel like it's a socially responsible thing. If I can uh, make some money and uh, help out those orca pods that are still in the wild, I might, might strongly consider that. Well, and, and people still need to do their research. I know, you know, I, I lived in Portland, and there was a Whole Foods market right across the street from me, and I love their products. They were real expensive. I mean, I've heard that, that joke about, you know, spending your old paycheck in there, but, but uh, you were sharing with me, too, that, you know, just because you personally like it, you still need to do your research because, there's, there's, you know, they might be experiencing challenges you're not familiar with. Well, indeed. I mean, in, in this example, the first thing I did was start to do some due diligence to find out more about the business. Obviously, I'm not a big fan of pinning the orcas up anyways, but when I find out that their dividend isn't supported, it's called fundamental analysis. When I find out their dividend isn't, isn't supported by their earnings and that dividend is acting as an income stream that supports the stock price, uh, that's a red flag. When I find out their CapEx, their capital expenditures are rising while their earnings are declining, you know, this is confirming my original thesis. As I mentioned, I still haven't gone out and spend, spend, done this trade, but your example of uh, Whole Foods, one of the reasons that you want consumers to know your brand and whether you're ethically responsible, Starbucks would be a good example. I walk and I go, really, you know, 250 for a Vente? At 260, 280? I don't know where we're on our way to, but it seems like every dime it's a dime more. But then I go, okay, well, the baristas have health care. Uh, Starbucks has a huge deal with my alma mater. I'm a Sun Devil, and they're offering uh, bachelor degrees to the baristas at Starbucks. So you go, okay, I feel a little better about perhaps 
uh, paying a little more money, some of that shows up in the margin of the business, meaning since they can get more for that, uh, they're actually uh, contributing to their own bottom line by that brand awareness that you feel like you are contributing to fair trade coffee, that this is coffee that, yeah, did we pay more than we could have had to pay perhaps in, uh, you know, wherever we're at, South America or Africa, but yeah, we're probably more willing to do that as a consumer and as a shareholder. Uh, there's a certain psyche that makes you feel good about that as well. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, coffee can make a lot big difference. They, you know, by using fair trade, we're keeping, you know, an organic, you know, we're, we're making sure that these people get fair wages for what they're doing. I you know, like organic because it keeps chemicals off the farm, which protects the workers that are there as well. So, I mean, there's just so many good things that you can do with fair trade organic. And I guess I would throw in shade grown because if you get shade grown coffee, they don't have to chop down the trees in the rainforest like they do for all the other coffee. It grows under the canopy. So, uh, there's just so many, so, so, you know, you really can make a difference with, you know, choosing the companies that, that you uh, work with. So, you know, I know before a lot of companies are concerned about shareholder lawsuits and, and then people started incorporating as a B, Corp, a B company. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to me as an investor if I'm looking at a B Corp versus a, yeah. you know, a reg, regular C? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we talked about that third in the acronym that people use, ESG. That third G is governance. And as I mentioned a lot of times you might, on a public company or even a private company, not want to be a director because of the liability and being a fiduciary uh, for the shareholders if they make a decision that is not, for example, a uh, buyout. What is really the best deal? If we get a tender offer to buy our company and we know it's the highest offer and I have a fiduciary responsibility to take that in a C-Corp, I'll contrast this with a B-Corp in a minute, uh, and we don't take that because we have a lower offer, but the guy is going to uh, keep our employees, uh, stay within our community. Uh, you know, I might have a, a problem with a class action lawsuit. So what a B Corp allows us to say to the investors, uh, there's no any large publicly B Corp yet, but it's a relatively recent uh, form of ownership, is that we have other constituents besides shareholders, and that my fiduciary responsibility in a B Corp actually extends to those other constituents, whether it be employees, whether it be the community. So I'm allowed to use those other uh, metrics uh, to fulfill my fiduciary responsibility. And it's not exclusively to the shareholders. So I'm just asking this for those out there. Does one perform any better than the other? Uh, I haven't, uh, you know, I would think if I was going to have that uh, discussion with a uh, person starting a business, because if you're originating capital, one of the first things you say to that, to that entrepreneur is, how do you want to organize your business? Do you want to organize your business as a uh, partnership? Do you want to organize it as an LLC, an S-Corp, a C-Corp? These are all choices. And if it sounds like he's organizing the business to give back, you know, like you and Ty said, that you're going to have a business that's actually going to support your activities, whether it be, you know, uh, feeding the homeless, not through your personal efforts, not through your own personal philanthropy, but through the business itself. I might suggest, hey, Chris, let's organize that as a B Corp because then if you're doing those things, you know, like our father, the missionary down there at Sparrow's Gate, or you're doing other things through the context of the business, uh, those minority shareholders will have less of an opportunity to come after you, you know, in a class action or fiduciary. And again, it's more, at this point, I think more of a, a, a marketing kind of an idea and a uh, do good kind of an idea. So to answer your original question, I see that more now in terms of the origination of smaller business. I don't know of any large publicly held businesses that are uh, going to their shareholders and say, hey, can we change from a C-Corp, which is the standard. The C-Corp is, uh, if I get too tactical, let me know because, you know, I have a tendency to do that. I haven't been in the business a long time. But anyways, most of the corporations that people are familiar with, 
uh, Starbucks, uh, Google, Facebook, or C-Corps. And I have not seen any of those NASDAQ, New York kind of companies say, let's reorganize and uh, go out to the shareholders and ask about being a B-Corp. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, folks, you're listening to Dean Tenney. He's a venture capitalist investment banker and my brother who's worked for more than, what, three decades now, Dean? How long have you been yeah, in the... Yeah, you like that. Now when I talk about the crash of 87, I realize that there's a lot of people who weren't even alive then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was there with you. It's one of the challenges we have is, uh, in, our, in the securities industry, the finance industry, because there's a lot of, uh, oh, I don't want to say uh, younger folks, but the... The standard has changed. You know, uh, we've gone to a standard now where, Chris, what do we care? You'll be gone. I'll be gone. Five, <laughs> right. ten years, we'll make our money and be out. And, but if you're going to operate in the space for decades like I have, you got to, you know, you, you want to do the right thing, but you still have to do the right thing because you're going to be continually, you know, out there, uh, you know, seeing people. I, the way I was taught by my mentors, if you take care of the relationships, the transactions will take care of themselves. But, you know, our industry has become much more transaction-oriented than it used to be. Folks, we're listening to Dean Tenney. We're going to come back in just a minute. We've got done listening about uh, B Corp corporations, socially responsible investing, ESG, you know, environment, sustainable governance. We're going to talk now about your money, what you might want to do with your money. We're also taking phone calls. If you want to call in and ask a question, feel free to dial anywhere from North America, 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. And of course, we'll be published on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn in uh, after the show, after we broadcast live. So that's a tip. If you're listening to the recorded version, you might not want to call in right now. We'll be right back after this message from Matthew McConaughey. Would it be crazy if you just stopped everything, packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? Would people think you'd lost your mind? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? A village crowded with Buddhist temples, not skyscrapers. A place where there isn't a word for recluse, but a thousand words for community. Would it be crazy to go 5,000 miles from home? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To build libraries and fill them with stories? Prepare a meal with food you helped grow? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Do you know a nonprofit that could use more money to accomplish their mission? Are you working for a charitable cause right now and need funding to do more? Nonprofitfundraising.com is dedicated to helping nonprofits and charities raise the funds they need. Discover the best fundraising ideas of 2015 and compare your fundraising results with others. Learn how to grow your organization and connect with more supporters at nonprofitfundraising.com. That's nonprofitfundraising.com. Welcome back to Up Close with Chris Tinney. To call in and be part of the show, dial 1-866-472-5788 from anywhere in North America. That's 1-866-472-5788. And now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to Up Close. Today it's with Dean Tenney, a venture capitalist investment banker from the Bay Area, sharing with us about socially responsible investing, ESG as it's come to know to be called, and what that means, a little bit about what to look for and and, uh, how it affects your pocketbook. People are being shy today, no calls, but we are having people post online. Dean, why don't I let you start knocking out uh, the questions there that we're getting posted on our event page. Yeah, yeah. The first thought out of the gate is about this idea of corporate governance, uh, you know, and your rights as a shareholder. One of the things you have a right is the right to vote on matters pertaining to the corporation. And two governance issues I've seen that were very interesting. Uh, as a Costco shareholder, uh, I supported management in this, but uh, Costco uses them in a domain to, uh, you know, get sites for Costco. So they'll go into jo- jo- Joe's Auto Body and, uh, you know, kind of more delinquent area of the uh, metropolitan area, be it L.A. or San Francisco, use them as domain to uh, take over Joe's, you know, space and then to the, uh, Costco. I voted to support that because it ends up being uh, millions of dollars more in uh, tax revenue for the uh, community. So some shareholders said no, so that's an idea of, okay, that what areas we am in a domain uh, used for or not, uh, we get to vote on that. Another one I'm a big fan of that's been coming up and as it relates to natural resource companies, uh, mining companies particularly, uh, oil companies, uh, this would go under both environmental and governance, where we're now going to disclose to our shareholders in 10Qs and 10Ks what are our royalty interests to uh, those uh, those countries. Some of them are totalitarian. Why I, I favor this is to make it easier for those uh, citizens of Nigeria, Angola, you know, wherever it happens to be, to be able to reconcile and audit the account, saying, well, listen, you know, Axon and Shell and BP said they gave you $40 billion, but only $20 billion actually showed up in our sovereign wealth fund or in our, you know, wherever it was supposed to go, the central bank. So the obvious question is, where's the other $20 billion? So those are two issues that uh, I would put into that ESG category. Uh, one of the questions we had, they came out of the web. This is on the investment advisory side. I would call the the steward side, not the search. You know, as I said, there's two functions, I think, in, in money, managing money. Uh, the search function where we find opportunities and the stewardship where we actually manage money. And the question was about uh, she had, uh, through her employer, access to a 403B. Uh, 403B or a 501C are retirement accounts where you get to fund them with pre-tax. Therefore, uh, employees of educational institutions, uh, 403Bs, and uh, employees of uh, charitable organizations, 501Cs. And my uh, uh, advice would be strongly to uh, put as much money pre-tax into that as possible. Anytime you have an opportunity to your employer to invest pre-tax, I would add that if you work for a private corporation, 401k, uh, you should definitely do so because the two major impediments to investment success are taxation and inflation. And any time of a uh, qualified retirement plan where you're funding a pre-tax, it's growing tax deferred, you've defeated uh, one of the major impediments was his taxation. You don't have to pay it until you get out of there. So if you can just beat inflation, uh, you will be getting and making positive uh, progress. This particularly becomes a no-brainer when you add to that idea uh, that there may be a match involved. So, you know, if there's a match involved, you definitely should, you know, the pre-tax money, you can go to your HR department and find out this is going to be cost money. I feel really good. You know, our minimum relationship at Gamma Global Investments, as I mentioned, we're not accepting accounts, but it's, you know, some that makes us not uh, approachable to some folks. And I said, listen, why don't you do this first? And it's so exciting. I see those people out of the town. They tell me how much they've accumulated uh, tax-deferred uh, for their retirement. They didn't even feel the uh, the pressure of not having that money 
uh, come to them in, in their paycheck, but rather, you know, payroll deduct. And uh, the second follow-on to that is in your 401k, in your uh, 501c, 403b, your TSA, tax-sheltered annuity, or 401k defined contribution. The other thing that's great is, you know, a lot of folks, in fact, the vast majority of folks, don't have the time, temperament, and expertise to be managing money. And the easiest way to hire a manager is through the context of a mutual fund. So you will have a, a mutual fund typically is the funding vehicle where you're putting your money in there. Now, I would uh, let people know you as the employee are assuming that investment risk. So when you make that selection of a particular mutual fund, you know, whatever it grows to or falls to, uh, that would be, you know, uh, what you have. And the great thing there is you have diversification. You know, one of the major risks investing is selection risk, picking the wrong thing. I love what Bernard Baruch said about uh, money. He said money is like manure and you ought to spread it around. And so in a mutual fund, you, you get instant diversification and you avoid what's called selection risk. And then it's just easier to own that, that mutual fund. So it's unfortunate that most people get where they're going without crashing and burning in that investment vehicle, perhaps, and in the others. And I think, Chris, you had a, another question come in? Yeah, we had one come in. They said they have $10,000 to invest, and they were wondering how you would recommend that be invested. Well, you know, the, the, the problem, I told you, Chris, our business has changed uh, over the last you know three decades I've been involved in it. You know, uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of brokers uh, have this mindset of, that we're not interested in large pools of people. We're interested in large pools of money. So, you know, they, they don't have anything against the people with 10 grand. They just don't want to talk to them. They'd rather be talking to somebody who has, you know, half a million, a million dollars. Um, again, I would say the way to get around that is in the context of a mutual fund because with as little as 500 or 1,000, I saw a friend of mine and and uh, he asked, he asked, you know, I asked how much money he had to invest. It was not enough to get involved at uh, Gamma Global. But I said, you know, you uh, ought to strongly uh, consider a mutual fund. He said, I could hire a professional manager with $500. I said, you know, there are men and women who sold their soul to manage that $500 or $1,000 <laughs> or $10,000. So as I mentioned, that would probably be the same thing I would uh, say to the first uh, uh, listener was uh, you ought to strongly consider the mutual fund where you get the professional management, you get the diversification, you get the use of ownership. And then remember, though, you got, you got the investment risk. So this particular person, I said, how are you going to feel if you lose this $10,000? And he said, I'd kill myself. And I said, well, then you don't belong in securities markets. If the idea <laughs> right. is you're going to put ten grand into the market and you're going to lose it all, it's going to cause you to kill yourself. You don't belong in the securities markets. You belong at a bank, talking to a banker about a banking product or talking to your insurance agent about an insurance product because those products – don't have investment risk. The the insurance company or the bank actually assuming that investment risk. So, you know, I would say, you know, the way I explain that to your hypothetical, uh, you know, ten grand and to invest, I would say to that listener, what you need to decide is, listen, if you go to a bank and get a CD, this doesn't come up, but I wish more people would talk about this. That one of the, the problems with the Fed having zero interest rates is a lot of unsophisticated people who are perhaps housing their capital who were previously. What I mean by that is, in the old days, you had 10 grand, you got a 6% CD, you're not going to get that now. You may not be very sophisticated, Chris, but you would know that I'm going to get back 10,600. You know, right. and I'd say to the banker, what do you guys do with my 10 grand on this certificate deposit? Well, we take your 10 grand, Dean, we go out, we, you know, originate mortgages and we buy stocks and we buy real estate and we hope to pay way more than the 6% that, you pro- that, that uh, we promised you. But at the end of the day, not your problem because, you know, we won't be a bank long if we can't do that. So you don't need to worry about that. And till very recently, you know, 1995, till very recently, historically, 
I would come in and say, hey, I forgot what you bastards are doing. You're taking my 10 grand and making these investments. And the banker would respond by saying, well, if you want to risk your capital, you're going to need to find a stockbroker guy. You'd physically right. have to leave that bank to actually go hazard your capital. But now you can actually hazard your capital off the, the banking platform. So I guess I would amend to say if you aren't comfortable taking investment risk, something as a consumer you have to be more aware of uh, today than you used to is even if you're talking to your insurance agent or your banker, make sure you're talking about a traditional banking product or an insurance product. And the challenge is uh, what's the CD going to pay you now? I, I know what's the Fed funds is still, you know, that close to damn, damn close to zero. So right. it becomes more likely you probably want a better return than that. But, you know, no free lunch. You're going to have to take greater risk to get it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a mutual fund makes a lot of sense for people up to a pretty significant amount of money, really. I mean, these days, unless they're going to, you know, <laughs> in the, unless... Yeah, well, Chris, yeah, Chris, I actually had a guy who told me his broker told him he was too sophisticated for a mutual fund. I said, really? I said, I've never <laughs> met that person. It may be you, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. um, you know uh, a lot of times this comes up, you know, we allocate capital to, uh, you know, venture capital funds, private equity funds, and hedge funds, and they're organized as private partnerships, which means they're by investment, by invitation only. And to get that invitation, you've actually got to have a million dollars net worth exclusive of your personal property or, you know, what we mean by as primary residence. So, you know, a lot of people can't, probably good to protect the Joe Sixpack from getting into that kind of a, an investment vehicle. But what I thought was kind of interesting is our, our, our pension officer of uh, San Francisco uh, was being solicited to invest in a uh, private uh, partnership, you know, venture capital, private equity, uh, hedge fund, kind of an, what we call in the business alternative investments. And he asked uh, Warren Buffett what he thought. And uh, Warren Buffett wrote on the top of his letter, sent it back to him, uh, buy the S&P Vanguard uh, 500 fund. Uh, you know, if you're Vanguard, you say to Mr. Buffett, thank you very much. Uh, one of the problems with the model, whether it's a mutual fund or not, is there is a problem with having monkeys harvest bananas. They eat the product. Right. But, you know, in those alternative investments, they eat a lot more of the product. And if you don't think professional management, active management is worthwhile to pay for, then you can get much lower cost by buying, you know, a, a trap fund like the Vanguard 500 fund or even what's, what we call in the business an ETA, ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund where you you don't really have a guy who's actively managing those investments. Well, I, I mean, I, I think for socially responsible investing, and you know, nowadays it's come so far since I was, you know, putting my clients in, in social, socially responsible investments. You know, I, I liked it because you're working with a professional money manager, and you can find a fund that matches up with your values too. I mean, now there's lots of funds if you want to divest from from the environment. Well, most of them aren't into any of the key things: tobacco, alcohol, um, you know, coal, uh, oil, dirty energy. Things things like that. So you can find the fund. So I guess, you know, since it's such a big fit for so many people, I mean, there are different kinds of funds. You mentioned, Dean, that now they're selling them out of the banks. I mean, some funds, the the reps can make a, you know, a pretty good commission on that. You know, you put in 10 grand and you've, you know, you've lost $800 right off the top. And other funds, they say that, you know, they're no load, there's no commission. Maybe you could share with people the differences on that and how they might decide between the two. Yeah, uh, two things. So, one of the major, this goes back to our listener with the 403B, uh, one of the largest money managers is now it's just not for teachers, is the uh, T Teachers Insurance Annuity Association, uh, CREF, College Retirement Educational Fund. It's just known in the business as the teachers. And uh, the trillion dollars they have over there, the vast majority of it is uh, people like the listener who works at a, uh, a college or a high school and they're funding their, their TSA, that tax sheltered annuity, 
through the teachers. Uh, obviously, in that community, it's important. And they have a couple, I would refer you to their website. Uh, they have a couple videos on uh, socially responsible investments and funds that match up. And even if you choose that that fund isn't for you, your point, Chris, I kind of call that like online dating. You're looking for a match. Right. So, you know, right. you watch the video, maybe you say, oh, these are these are people I feel comfortable being stewards of my capital and how they're doing that. Maybe not, but it's a good good educational, you know, video you can watch about uh, socially responsible investments and how they do asset allocation to, uh, you know, what you know, how they're avoiding, you know, the screens they're running to avoid uh, things that you might uh, find uh, don't fit with your personal uh, ethical profile. So that would be one thing I would say to that. And then in terms of your, and by the way, they have a reputation for being a uh, very efficient provider of money management. So they have a reputation for, it goes to your question about fees. Uh, you can officially, uh, on a regulatory front, refer to yourself as a no-load fund if you don't charge more than 25 basis points as a promotional expense. So let me put that in plain English. Uh, you know, you brought up an 8% mutual fund. I don't know if anybody charging 8% anymore. I mean, that would be, you know, right. uh, you know, that'd be out there. I, I really, but yeah. like Franklin, I think Franklin charges 4%. So your point, 100 grand, you know, uh, as a broker, my commission on 100 grand is going to be $4,000, which I split, but, you know, between my broker dealer and myself uh, as, a, as a rep. Uh, but if I'm charging, you know, 1% on 100 grand to be 1,000, 25 basis points would be $250. So Vanguard, for example, is about 20 basis points. And that's what they spend for the television, the advertising, all that kind of stuff. If I charge a promotional expense, this is beyond the low. This is a expense that's being paid by the fund because that four grand comes out of your 100, Chris, as an investor. So the fund didn't pay the four grand. The client paid the rep the $4,000. Right. In this case, the fund is actually being charged as money. So, you know, a lot of brokers, because we haven't been so good in explaining the cost structure, Sometimes I try to hide how we're being compensated and saying, hey, Chris, here's how I make, you know, my money off your investment, which, you know, is one of my pet peeves about this lack of transparency sometimes about how your investment professional is being paid. So if I charge you more than 25 basis points, more than that, I'm not allowed to refer to the fund as a no-load fund. Now, here's the problem with my Franklin hypothetical. If you're in a 1% fund with a 12B1 fee, first off, it's not a no-load fund. That means every year I'm going to take a thousand of whatever assets are there. So, you know, my Franklin might have been better off to pay Franklin four grand and be done with it than to continue to pay a thousand dollars a year forever. Right. Right. Because at the end of the fourth year, you were better just to pay the load and not pay that promotional expense. Um, what what frosts me about that is when I'm talking to prospects and people like that, and I'll ask them, like I have one guy who was just astounding. He said he couldn't read his statements from his broker. I go, well, that's that's problematic. You should be able to look at that statement. And pretty quickly, and I thought, well, maybe he's just, you know, naive. I think he's even more sophisticated. I'll be damned. I, I've been in the business. I could barely read the damn statement. I mean, it, I, I actually feel bad. I actually think they purposely had a statement that was difficult to figure out what was going on. And I asked him, how are you paying your investment professional? He said, I don't know that either. I said, well, <laughs> that's a problem. I mean, you know, in my example, I charge people 1% assets under management to manage their money, and there's no commissions unless it's a banking side, which I disclose to you, like if you invest in this winery, you know, team's going to make X. Uh, but on the investment advisory side, 1% and no commission. So, you know, I think that's pretty reasonable, uh, but that's no loads on the product. So that's something you definitely want to make sure you're, when you're talking to your investment professional, how they're being compensated and how does that compare to industry practice or, or what I refer to as best practice in the business. But needless to say, 
if you can't read your statement from your investment professional, you don't know how they're being compensated. That's that's a problem. Do, do you think that you know the the divester from from you know dirty energy and and the you know the growing uh, socially responsible investing? I mean, is it having an impact? Can it have an impact? I mean, what would you say to people that are wondering if it if it really matters? Well, I think yeah, I think someday it will matter. But right now, it's the, it's the problem is scalability. I mean, we've got. You know, it's hard for us in the U.S. I was very pleased that, you know, uh, China announced that they're going to try and do something they have to. I mean, their constituents are dying of smog in, in Beijing, so it's by necessity that people are having to deal with this. But um, until we figure out how to change the grid, I don't think it's going to have much impact. Some people say it'll be economies of scale when you can get, you know, solar or alternatives to actually be cheaper than fossil-based fuels. That that while we're getting better at that, people don't know we're also getting better at the that same technology is making that work better. There's also at play in the fossil fuel business, racking things like that. So I think personally, this is Dean's personal opinion. So you know, nobody else's. I think it's 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 having an impact. Like Tom Steyer of Fairlawn Capital has a political action committee called NextGen. He's putting his money out there to try and get uh, promote uh, you know clean energy. Um, I think it's kind of a little bit of hypocrisy because he his hedge fund made a lot of money in fossil based fuels before you know he you know he retired as a billionaire and uh, started doing that. But my own opinion is, hey, yeah, it's still not it's still not there yet. And then the other problem we're going to have is the rest of the world. It's hard to tell somebody who's never had a car, never had the advantage of fossil fuels that you know no fossil fuels for you. So that's why I think the China thing was really great, and uh, we can show some leadership. I mean, the solar is getting there. The, the other thing is about storing the energy, whether it's wind energy or solar energy. How do you actually store it so it's available on demand when there's no sun, there's no wind? Uh, so, you know, there, I, I think that problem will eventually be solved, but I think it's, personally, I just think it's made decades out. What, what do you think it, about people that, that are, you know, skeptical of the whole Wall Street uh, you know, operation thinking that, you know, the little guy's just getting screwed, that the, the, there's no way to win. I, I mean, most people don't have an understanding of how any of it works. So they, they go off of anecdotes, you know, the banks being bailed out after they lost all this money. I think people here carried interest. Trump just came out with his plan to start taxing. You know, most people probably don't even know what carried interest is. Um, I mean, yeah. is, is, it, is, it a, is it a is it a crooked casino? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Chris, I, I'm just as exasperated as they are. I mean, so the idea that somehow we in my industry should be some special uh, protected species and be bailed out and not have to live with the consequences of our decisions, failure of the business, uh, this casino mentality where heads I win, tails I still win. Uh, you know, if this was any other business, so, you know, it just frosts me. Like we've, we're blaming the flash crash on my guy in his bedroom in the UK, which is ridiculous. So I think the answer to that question, I think there are, and now we're getting companies to disgorge uh, billions of dollars and having the company plead guilty to criminal activity, uh, no contest, but not the individual or manager company. So in my own world, I'm like, well, how could a corporation have done something bad and the person running the corporation who made the decision is not held accountable and we just make them disgorge the profits? So, for example, I think Dick Fold at Lehman Brothers, I'm more than happy to explain why I think this, Angelo Mazzello at Countrywide, uh, these are two guys that I actually think should have been criminally indicted under Starbucks, Sarbanes-Oxley, and, uh, you know, whether or not they, they go to jail or not. But, you know, I'm, as a taxpayer, I'm, I'm exasperated, too, that both those guys, in Mazzello's case at Countrywide, uh, he paid a $67 million settlement uh, and still has, you know, tens of millions of dollars left over. So, you know, maybe if we did throw some people in jail and 
throw some people and, uh, you know, hang them from the nearest tree, uh, come at them with some pitchforks. Maybe uh, guys in my business would, would do this. The other thing is that, you know, we have this thing called too big to fail where, the, you know, we claim that you can't let me fail at layman because, that, you know, they let layman fail, but that you can't, you know, throw me in jail because I have a chilling effect. We don't say that of any other industry but mine, that, you know, if you were a utility company or you were a tech company or some other company, you wouldn't have this idea that I'm so important to the economy. Don't get me wrong. I think I'm important. Originating, allocating, and managing capital, I think, is a very, very important thing. But it, it's not somehow more important than other things. <laughs> right, right. But the same thing, you'd be going to jail. So I, I'm exasperated <laughs> as one. Now, the carried interest thing, uh, you know, that they could roll their, their costs back into the fund. I don't need the money now. Yeah, that's easy to get rid of. I, you know, uh, Bernie keeps saying, is, I'm a capitalist, so I'm not a socialist, obviously, but Bernie keeps talking about the billionaire class. There's only 536 billionaires. So even though you took away the carried interest for the hedge fund guys and private equity guys and uh, those guys, venture capital guys, that, and then every other billionaire, I don't have the 536, I, my guess is probably 10, 15, 20% are finance guys. But, you know, even if you confiscate all their, their fortune and their, their tax deductions and their free speech, I don't think that fixes the problem. I think what would be better is to, you know, make an example, you know, throw a couple of people in jail and make them contemplate their, their bad behavior. It might have a, a, calming, a, a good effect on, on <laughs> other people in my industry. Well, uh, thank you, Dean, for, for uh, going over this with us. Folks, we're talking about socially responsible investing, ESG, as it's become to be known, with Dean Tenney, a venture capitalist investment banker with Gamma Global, and my brother, who I started out in in the industry uh, more than two decades ago. And uh, he's sharing a little bit about what he does. He's not accepting clients now, but I thought this would be a great opportunity for you to come into my home and sit down and meet my friends and, and family. And I always say that every week, and so I'm really happy about this show. Uh, Hotai Media, my agency we've we've done deals with dean where i've you know the agency supported him uh supported their clients with you know social media campaigns or or market awareness campaigns and some other things so i'm really excited if you want to find out more you can find dean on linkedin and you can go to hotimedia.com the ad agency where i'm a managing director dean so what are you what are you up to now where are you going to be what's your next projects you're going to have going well, I, I, I've kind of, you know, I've always been teaching, as you know, Chris, throughout the years, I've uh, done teaching and tutoring for uh, entry-level people and uh, senior management at, uh, you know, brokerage firms. And uh, I'm actually, you know, winding down a little more on the investment side, powering up on the the teaching, training, and the writing side. So I've got uh, uh, three books I'm looking to put out in the next uh, 12 months. I'm starting with, uh, I might change the title, you know, use the publisher. You know, sometimes the publisher has a better idea what a title should be versus the writer, but uh, the first book I want to put out uh, is called Baby Broker. That may not be the title, but basically what happens when I have on the uh, baby brokers coming into the business, I'd like to share with them, uh, you know, my thoughts on the right way to build a business and how to go about that. So kind of a nuts and bolts how-to kind of a book. Okay, you have, you know, you passed your, what's called their Series 7, your six-hour exam, so now what do you do? You know, you've got a phone, you've got a you know, computer, what do you do? Uh, and then I, you know, as you know, Chris, uh, having been with me a long time, I, I, I also have a, I think, uh, something to say, what I, I tend to be calling adventures in capitalism. Uh, so we've been talking about socially responsible investments, but I've had some other investments in my day that were very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I was involved in uh, financing some nightclubs, strip clubs in San Francisco and uh, restaurants out in the Presidio and some other things. And there's been some great uh, stories there that I think need to be told. So tentatively, I'm thinking about that as kind of a 
and memoir adventures in capitalism kind of thing, wineries and the, the billionaires I've met. I've met, you know, over the three decades, I've met, you know, a half a dozen billionaires who are very interesting fellows. And, you know, some of those stories, maybe you have to change some names and some uh, things to protect the guilty and the innocent. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's it. And then getting a blog started, I know you're going to help me with that, getting my social media presence up and running. Uh, right now, I'm sure... Uh, a lot of people following me on Facebook think probably, well, well, geez, this guy's all over the map. He's one day he's railing and ranting about you know how Trump isn't qualified to be president. The other days he's you know ranting as a libertarian about legalizing drugs. So I've got to get that. Uh, probably Facebook isn't the right venue for that. Perhaps a, a Tumblr or a blog, and I'm sure you're going to help me with that, trying to get that organized. Uh, for right now, I'm on Goodreads. People can also find me there. I'm, as you know, and have, uh, I read quite a bit and uh, very eclectic in my reading and. Uh, posting my reviews on my well, tell people there, about your so. tell people about your book collection. That, that's a beautiful. You should post some pictures of that on. I, I feel really guilty about that, as you know. I have a beautiful thousand square foot library, and I feel bad that all my dead tree books haven't had any new company because, you know, uh, I mean, they've been using my Kindle. I go down my <laughs> library and read my paperwhite, and I'm like, oh, my poor books. So, you know, they need my leather bound books, and I have the you know, big ladder. You know, you've been there and. So I'm, I feel real guilty when I'm down there in my library and I haven't really accumulated any more Library of America editions or any of my Eastern Press editions or any of that stuff. So I got to get, I got to at least discipline myself to start adding to the collection rather than uh, putting everything through the uh, the paperweight. But I got to tell you, you know that paperweight, you know it's nice when you're traveling, you can carry you know 50 books with you at a time and <laughs> get your paper downloaded. So yeah, the library is uh, I'm sure feeling. Underused. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you, you mentioned uh, you know the, your first year as a, a, a registered representative or the baby broker book as we've been kind of using as a working title? Uh, do you think it's a good time for people to go into this industry? I mean, I, I can't imagine making these calls anymore like we did back in the day, but I you know people are doing it. I guess is it is it a good career? You think for those starting out well, today? Our business is you know it's, I think it's a great business in this regard. You know when are you going to get like me? I mean. You, Chris, and I, you know, uh, where are we ever going to be able to fly on G5 with billionaires? <laughs> I think it's one of the few businesses where you can start with not a whole lot and through uh, dedication, discipline, organization, uh, work your way uh, up the food chain, so to speak. The learning curve is very, very steep, and I think that's where the book would be very helpful. But, uh, yeah, you have to adapt. You know, we have a national do-not-call list. I mean, you've got to conduct business a little differently, but it's still about, you know, hard work and perspiration, perspiration. Uh, sweat equity, and I think any business with sweat equity is one to consider. And also, I think, Chris, so, yeah, I've talked about the challenges and things I'm aggravated about in the business, but if you're a baby broker, you're a tabula rasa, so maybe you don't know about the conflicts we've had between fees versus and being a fiduciary versus, you know, being a commissioned salesperson, and maybe you can build a model from scratch that's better than, than what you and I, you know, did in the day, right? Yeah, right, you know? yeah. So, I mean, so, uh, yeah, I think it's still a good business. I told you, I get very turned on. You know, I do my entry-level Series 7 uh, four days a month for every month in San Francisco. It's one of my favorite classes. I still feel spirit-filled about welcome to the business, and, you know, I'll be out of the town, and somebody will pick up my check, and I'll find out some person I've trained and helped, and they're out making a good living, supporting their family. So that's a huge emotional payoff for me, and I still think that's, that's, that's out there. So uh, I don't mind uh, getting and recruiting people into the business. And then I go to my other favorite class, I do every other month in San Francisco is my two-day, I call it babysitting uh, broker class. It's called a Series 24, and those are people who are established and now are supposed to be supervising brokers, making sure to do it the right way. And for me, that's a perfect uh, bookend. Welcome to the business. You know, you've been in the business, peers, in the 24 class. So, yeah, I think our business is a great one. Money management is still 
you know, about finding money, moving money, and placing money. And I think, Chris, the biggest thing I think that they don't realize that you and I know is that, you know, in your first, what, six to 12 months, it's a, it's a prospecting sales job. Right, right. I'll tell stories, and my baby brokers will come and go, man, that's a, when do I get a story like that? I said, well, first got to get client. <laughs> you <know? laughs> that could take you, you know, a lot of long time. So uh, hopefully we can help that be a little more, if, I mean, you know, if we do this book correctly, maybe we can make that learning curve a little more approachable for. And then I think the other thing that I'm thinking about as kind of a third thing is, like, if you're on the other side of it, because i got to tell you, so many entrepreneurs, when I tell them to watch Shark Tank, that, that, you know, they'll come to me and have some half-baked idea about, going out raising capital. So maybe a primer for entrepreneurs like, okay, here's what a private placement is. Here's what the jobs act here. Here's what a guy like Dean wants you to see uh, present in terms of, you know, financial plans and that kind of thing. Cause uh, I've had some pretty coolest people that you know, get good notes. Good. We were able to educate them and raise them the money they need to fund their restaurant or winery. Don't get me wrong. Some of them are all sophisticated. They don't need any help like that. So if any of my clients are listening, don't put yourself into either one of these baskets because you know who you are. That being said, um, I've had some uh, chefs that I wish I could hand them a book and say, hey, go read this and come back on you know, your next appointment. We'll go from there. So All right. maybe there's a, an educational opportunity there as well. Well, before we go, one one billionaire anecdote. <laughs> Do, uh, or, or description. Okay, is, there well, a different, yeah. is there really a different mindset, you think, with those guys? I mean, a lot of people think, they, I mean, the biggest predictor yeah. of being wealthy yeah. is, is your parents' income. I mean, no, or, or have you noticed something different? different? There's a different mindset. For example, one of the guys, uh, I couldn't get him to understand anything unless there were like seven more zeros on the end of it. So <laughs> numbers that don't have, you know, many, many zeros. I, I totally respect that. But it was funny in his case, uh, <laughs> we were talking about flying somewhere in the G5. And I said, I said, well, if I miss the flight, I'll catch up to you. And he said, well, you know, would you have, I said, but I have a fleet of jets around the country queued up 30 minutes notice. So he started giving me a financial model about why NetJets was not a very good idea, fractional ownership. I said, no, no, no. I'm not talking about NetJets. I'm talking about Southwest. (laughs) (laughs) He had uh, more than one uh, airplane to uh, fly around. So uh, there is a saying in our business, once your your money manager has his own personal jet, particularly G5, that's when you should send in your redemption notice because they're uh, more worried about flying around and having a good time than managing your money. In this case, I can assure you not. So the other thing I've been fascinated about with these billionaires, Chris, is I have other things I like to do besides make money. I'd like to read and, you know, I like to smoke a cigar and enjoy my time with you and mom and my library. And uh, it amazes me to, to, to some of these billionaires how hard they work. They'll say, well, Dean, if you were me, would you work that hard? I go, absolutely not. <laughs> so <laughs> you got to give them a kudos for wanting to continue. I think it's more about the game at some point. I don't know what that is, a billion, two. Yeah. Okay, one more story. One more story. So okay. the guy's on the Force 400. And I know that he's actually should be higher on the Force 400 than he really is. And I said to him, I said, well, if you'd like, I'll write to a letter to the editor and explain to them that you really should be much higher. So he said, well, what makes you think I'm much higher? I walk him through what I know about him. And, you know, I said, so my number is, you know, X. And he said, well, your number is uh, way more accurate. I said, but why would you really want to be higher up on a kidnapping list? I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, you know, as a whale like yourself, I think I would stay uh, underneath the surface because, the only way you can get harpooned is actually to, you know, surface and then somebody's going to get you. And what I love every time I read about him, he's considered to be a philanthropist rather than a, uh, an ugly capitalist, which, you know, I think Mitt Romney could have used some advice from him because they're basically in a similar space, but he's always a philanthropist and he's, which is true, by the way. I mean, he gives away millions and millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars. But uh, I always thought that's great that he's never referred to as a 
a broker, you know, finance, hedge fund guy. He's always the philanthropist. I go, <laughs> I aspire to that. That would be great, great if, you know, someday, Chris, we could be philanthropists rather than, you know, capitalists. <laughs> That's great. Well, hey, Dean, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. We'll have you back on when you get further along with your projects and your book okay. and, and talk more. Folks, if you're listening to the show online, if you're on my page at christinney.com, you'll see all the links to anything we mentioned here on the show. If you want to learn more and some uh, links to some some uh, different companies that we mentioned as well. If you're on iTunes or, or Google Play listening to this, you can go to christinney.com to review any of our, our other shows. Uh, this is part of a series I'm doing on how you can make a difference on the planet. And we, you know, we mentioned dirty energy, how that could have a big difference. We, we had Jonathan uh, Budd, the, the CEO of, of Power, who's helping people start their own clean energy grids. We've had the CEO of Hemp Inc., a, a company that I've done uh, business with as, as the managing director of Hotai Media, helping them about how hemp, which uh, just passed today in North Carolina and in a Senate bill as well, is being legalized. You know, America is the number one importer of hemp, and yet we're, we, <laughs> we're the number one importer of hemp, and yet we still are just now beginning to uh, let our own farmers grow it. So uh, there's, there's a lot of huge impact there. Uh, if you want to learn more about the mutual funds, I'll put some links up there to the ones that he mentioned on the show. And thank you to all of you that are sharing the Up Close episodes on your Facebook and social media. I really appreciate it. I go to every one. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to do that. They tell me uh, we just got through our first month. We were one of the, the all-time most downloaded shows in that first month, 30,000 downloads. So I, I'm, I'm really excited about the people we're reaching, and it, it wouldn't be happening without you. So we'll see you next week on Up Close with Chris Tinney. This is the end of the show. You don't have to let the conversation end now. Visit ChrisTinney.com to learn more about today's topic. Listen to past shows and connect with like-minded people. Up Close with Chris Tinney is broadcast live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel and rebroadcast online and throughout North America in select markets. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And we'll see you next week on Up Close with Chris Tinney.